Welcome to the Element of Surprise. My name is Chadwick J. Suet, and I'm your host. Uh, you can find us in all the usual spaces, uh, www.facebook.com backslash EOS Mentally Irregular takes you to our Facebook page. Um, from there, you can join the EOS group. Fun stuff going on there. You get more, uh, more visual stuff. You get to connect with Bill on the streets. And, uh, you know, I post uh, not just the episodes to this podcast, but also the episodes to some other podcasts on there that I think are worth listening to as well. Um, if you want to just hear just this podcast and you don't feel like going through the rigmarole of Facebook, go to eosmentallyirregular.podbean.com. That's our hosting site. You'll find all of the episodes there. Okay, so... Um, been a while since I've recorded anything, but that doesn't mean that I haven't been working on the podcast for all of you. I've been uh, actually coming up with ideas like a madman. I've got enough content here for probably the next nine episodes, so we're just going to get right to it. Okay. Uh, first thing I want to talk to about talk to you guys about is, um, you know, there was a movie that came out. I, I you know, I, you'll for those of you who have joined the EOS group or seen the Element of Surprise Facebook page, you'll see that the current banner was first, uh, for a while there, it was uh, Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed frolicking in the ocean in their shortest of shorts after running alongside the beach from Rocky Three, And I put the EOS logo up there and it said friendship. Um, What that means, I don't know. It means something different to everybody. But currently, you'll see a scene from uh, another Sylvester Stallone movie called Over the Top, which is all about arm wrestling. But it's really more... than just arm wrestling, and I'm going to tell you about it now. So the movie is called Over the Top, and uh, just right off the bat, never before in the history of cinema has a movie title so accurately described its plot. Um, based on the original one-sheet poster for the movie, you might think that it's about a gi- gigantic, somewhat annoyed, and extremely well-oiled uh, Stallone patrolling the country with his chrome eagle sidekick, crushing cars and causing chaos wherever he goes. And, you know, while that movie would be amazing and undoubtedly break box office records, um, it in no way, shape, or form reflects the plot of the actual film at all. Um, The movie is really about Stallone, who he's portraying a down-on-his-luck truck driver, like long-haul truck driver, who, um, you know, following the death of his wife, goes about trying to reconcile with his estranged son. Um, And as you might expect, the kid isn't uh, too pumped about having a deadbeat truck driver for a dad. Um, Even though 
he is well lubricated, like on the poster. I don't understand why, but he just... It's like he sweats some form of lubricant rather than just sweat. He just glistens all the time. Um, but, you know, the kid finds out uh, his, his opinion of his dad, uh, Stallone, starts to change when he finds out that he is a fan-fucking-tastic arm wrestler. And somehow, through winning an arm wrestling tournament, Stallone wins both the respect of his son and also custody of him somehow. I don't exactly understand how that worked. Uh, and this was all done uh, in spite of Robert Loja. Loja? Robert Loja. You know... Um, who, for some reason in the movie, was attempting to buy the child. I don't understand why. Uh, he might have been the granddad, but I'm not sure. I just remember, I clearly remember a scene where he calls Stallone to his mansion, and he writes him a check and says, and now you'll never see the boy again, and, you know, gives him the check, like a $10,000 check. So he, he, bought, he, he literally bought the child in that film. Um, you know, but the, the film really displays several elements of pure Stallone-ness throughout the entire movie. Um, first, we're, tre we're treated to a scene of astounding violence when Stallone, who, by the way, his character's name is possibly the most badass name for an arm-wrestling truck driver ever. His name is Lincoln Hawk. And uh, so in the scene, he pushes a man through some very nice French doors and, uh, at the very least, inju injures this guy. Next, there's a series of overconfident and overweight antagonists who want to arm-wrestle him. Um, assuming simply to dash his hopes of strengthening the bond with his son. Um, inexplicably, one of these men uses a strange analogy to describe the pain that he intends to inflict on Stallone during their arm wrestling contest. He says, I'm going to go through you like gas through a funnel. That's his threat. I'm going to go through you like gas through a funnel. And then he drinks a quart of motor oil, which I can only assume would hurt his chances of winning. I mean, his insides would be on fire from that. That's going to, that's going to, you know, hamper, that's going to dampen his chances of, of defeating Stallone or anybody in that, um, in an arm wrestling contest. He's probably going to need immediate medical attention. I, I don't know why they would even let him have that there. Um, but then, you know, later in the film, to the roar of hungry, hundreds of bicep hungry fans, uh, Stallone's bottom lip, you know, the one that always does the draw, it, it, it finds new depths on his face that were previously thought unreachable, unreachable by science. And uh, he beats two opponents and advances to the finals. I think it should again be stated that Stallone only entered this arm wrestling tournament to show what a good father he could be. And as the Supreme Court ruled in 1962, there's no better way to do that than through arm wrestling. Uh, but while this is going on, while he's in this tournament, his son is completely unsupervised and traveling the streets of Las Vegas without him. So, uh, you know, that, that should be kept at the forefront of your mind and not just dismissed and brushed off while you watch this film. So I, I, I really had to talk about that. It's been bugging me. But, um, you know, moving on, moving right along, we've got, uh, I've been doing some weird weird stuff as, uh, you know, usual, I guess. And I, I found some newspaper headlines from history. And I'm talking like way back, like late 1800s, early 1900s, that kind of like stuff that you find in the local newspaper. And, uh, you know, the, the kid on the corner, extra, extra, read all about it, that kind of paper. So the first article I found was called Don't Trust Horses. 
And uh, it was from a uh, newspaper called the Amador County Ledger. And it's from 1902. So, in uh, on October 3rd of 1902, in the... The ledger released an edition that had an article in it, and the article was published with no byline. It's fairly short, uh, just you know, about 200 words, and uh, it's got a very good title. And it says, "Don't trust horses." That's the headline, followed by the words, "Part maniac and part idiot is what one man calls them." What followed is a rant of a person. <laughs> who despised, despised horses with every last fiber of his being. And I'm going to transcribe it for you now, because it needs to be heard as many times as humanly possible. It reads as follows. I have spent much of a long life in the observation of horses. I have reared them, broken them, trained them, ridden them, driven them in every form from the plow to four in hand. I don't know what that means, but that's what he says. The result of these years of study is summed up in one sentence. I believe the horse to be part maniac and part idiot. Every horse at some time in his life develops into a homicidal maniac. I believe any man who trusts himself or his family to the power of a horse stronger than himself to be lacking in common sense and wholly devoid of ordinary prudence. I have driven one commonplace horse every other day for six years over the same road, and then had him go crazy and try to kill himself and me because a leaf fluttered down in front of him. I have known scores of horses, apparently trustworthy, apparently creatures of routine, to go wild and insane over equally regular and recurring phenomena. No amount of observation can tell when the brute will break out. One mare took two generations of children to school over the same quiet road, and then in her 19th year went crazy because a rooster crowed alongside the road. She killed two children. If anyone can tell me of one good reason why man should trust a horse, I should be glad to know. That's the whole article. So, as you can see, this starts off with the insanity of a man who strongly dislikes horses, and it quickly delves into the depths of pure horse madness. Uh, though to be fair, it doesn't sound like this guy's against all horses as much as he is against the use of, <laughs> of strong horses. Uh, he'd prefer if people who were moving from Wyoming to California in their covered wagons <laughs> used weak, uh, wheezing, pathetic horses covered in flies and reeking of their own impending doom to haul their 20 children and belongings across multiple states. That, that's what he would prefer. Um, another article I found was called Battle with a Bald Eagle. And uh, this one was from uh, the 1891, it was an 1891 newspaper uh, in which a uh, ballooning enthusiast, and by ballooning I mean like hot air ballooning, uh, a ballooning enthusiast by the name of Arthur Cleveland, who uh, claimed to be riding in a hot air balloon around 3,000 feet in the air, presumably en route to the, to the moon, I guess. Um, he had a red handkerchief tied to the side of his basket, and a bald eagle attacked it. Uh, he claimed a bald eagle had a six-foot wingspan, and it, it attacked the, the handkerchief. And uh, this threw off his flight, flight, path, flight path, so with little other option, he began to fight uh, the symbol of our country in midair fisticuffs. 
and it reads as follows. Aeronaut Cleveland's thrilling experience in midair. When the car of Professor Arthur Cleveland balloon finally rested on the ground, he stepped out of the big wicker basket and fell fainting in the long grass of the meadow. The professor is a balloonist of one year's experience. He is engaged to make two ascensions during the present week for the edification of the rustics who are expected to attend the fair at Colhester. Cleveland is a man of 24 years of age and has made numerous ascensions. Yesterday afternoon, he decided to go up about a mile for practice. About two o'clock, he entered his car and began to shoot upwards. It was a perfect day with scarcely a breath of air stirring. Aside of the basket fluttered a red bandana handkerchief, which the professor has tied there for some unnamed purpose. He has ascended nearly 3,000 feet, so he says, when he saw a huge bird flying swiftly towards him. As it drew closer, the professor saw it was none other than a large bald eagle, which proceeded to attack his red bandana handkerchief. The handkerchief steadfastly withstood the eagle's powerful jerks and yanks, that's what she said, but at the expense of Cleveland's intended flight path. Cleveland, using a stick, began to swing at the bird. He whacked it so hard that the eagle backed up, but when it regained its composure, swooped into the basket to, to attack Cleveland himself. Okay, so it has him listed as professor throughout this article. Um, I can only guess he's a professor of ballooning. And uh, it also makes a very specific note that his red bandana's intended purpose is known only to him. Nobody else is allowed to know. He refused, Cleveland apparently refused to disclose any further information regarding the intended purpose of that red bandana. Um, I can only assume for fear that other balloonists may steal his trademark secret for, uh, for, for their own nefarious purposes. So, backtracking here a little. He's in the balloon, he's flying around like an idiot, and a bald eagle attacks his bandana. So, this uh, professor, C Professor Cleveland starts beating the shit out of the bird with a stick because, you know, he just happened to have a stick of sufficient resilience to pummel a bald eagle while he's 3,000 feet in the air. Um, so they get into this crazy aerial fight. You know, with the eagle, I guess, trying to peck out Cleveland's eyes and Cleveland's bashing its face with a skyward, uh, you know, his giant stick, his skyward bashing rod until uh, he bashed it so much that the eagle started getting a little woozy. Um... You know, and he, he had every intention now of showing this eagle exactly with whom it had, it had decided to fuck. And uh, he delivered the coup de grace to the eagle's head and sent it spiraling down to the earth below. So, again, uh, he landed, and his body was unable to process how astoundingly badass what had just happened was, and he momentarily passed out. Uh, he regained consciousness shortly thereafter, retraced his steps uh, for who knows, or his path, I guess I should say, not his steps, because he was in the, in the fucking air. Um, for God knows how many miles until he found the body of the bald eagle that had tried to commit a sky crime against him. Now, there's no record anywhere in the article of what he did or said once he got to the eagle's body, so I'm going to imagine that he grimaced at, its, uh, grimaced at it while its body was twitching, struggling to hold on to life in its final moments, and then he said something really badass and witty like, What you did was ill-eagle. And then he beat it until it met bird Satan and bird hell. You guys get it? It's illegal because it's illegal to kill bald eagles. What you did was illegal. I don't know. It's gay. But uh, anyway, because he beat the eagle to death, 
he was almost arrested, and they char- and they fined him five hundred and fifty dollars, which in eighteen ninety one is a shitload of money. Um, I-, I think that's an insult to him, though. I don't view him as anything less than America's first and only balloon lord of the skies. So, those are some uh, those are some uh, actual newspaper articles from history. Uh, yes, Barnabas, I hear you. So now, uh, speaking of Barnabas, now I'm going to talk to you for a few moments about how to drastically improve upon cats. So how can I, how can I start this out? You know, on, um, on paper, nobody can argue with cats. It's got a nice concept, a clean design, they're the right size, they got a good noise level, there's no real need for them to go outside, they're more or less independent. You know, the theoretical cat is perfect for, like, a lazy or haphazard lifestyle. And that being said, for better or worse, no matter what kind of cat you have, and in spite of any of their theoretical benefits or how much you love them, actual cats offer nothing of value to modern humanity. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because I'm not speaking ill of cats in any way. I'm just saying that they bring absolutely nothing to the table. You know, I'm just trying to offer solutions on way we can improve upon cats so that all of mankind can love cats the way that we cat lovers love cats. So, some of these suggestions are practical, some are kind of radical, but uh, no one can ever say that I was one of those cat bashers who just complained about the problem and didn't do anything. So, here are some of my, uh, some of my ideas. Number one, make cats glow in the dark. And I, I, I want to add here, that I found out after I wrote this down that this is actually a thing already. But, um, you know, so, but just hear, hear, hear it out. Okay, so try, try and follow me. <clears throat> so you and your friends have been out all night. Uh, you bring your after party back to your place. Everyone's having a good time. And, you know, bam, that's when you drop the hammer. You turn out the lights and people start to shriek because your home goes completely dark. Except for, what's that? What's that glowing neon green thing? Holy shit, that's your fucking cat. You've got a glow-in-the-dark fucking cat. How fucking awesome would that be? Everyone applauds you for taking part, uh, taking uh, your life at style and your party to a brand new level, and they drape the flag, the U.S. flag around you like at the end of Rocky IV. You give a very impassioned speech about cats, and everyone cheers. Hearts on fire starts to blare in the background. And, you know, that as awesome as that all sounds, that is just the beginning. Number two, idea number two. Hire Morgan Freeman to narrate a documentary about cats. It's no secret that if you add Morgan Freeman's voice to video or anything, people will fall in love with it. And that's a scientifically proven fact, and it was made into law by Congress in 1994. Um, He could literally, Morgan Freeman could literally be describing a (laughs) a wolverine attacking a baby, and it would be absolutely thrilling to listen to. Uh, horrifying to behold, but l- thrilling to listen to. Um, thereby, using my unchallenged Vulcan logic, having him narrate an actual 48 continuous hours of cats would be fucking awesome. Fuck, he could just literally read the description of cats from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Here, here it is. Now, imagine this with Morgan Freeman's voice in your head and not mine. The house cat is a domesticated member of the family Felidae. 
Order Carnivora, and the smallest member of that family. Like all felids, domestic cats are characterized by their supple, low-slung bodies, finely molded heads, long tails that aid in balance, and specialized teeth and claws to adapt them admirably to a life of active hunting. Domestic cats possess other features of their wild relatives in being basically carnivorous, remarkably agile and powerful, and finely coordinated in movement. Now imagine that in Morgan Freeman's voice. Boom! Your head just exploded. Cats are now 1,000% better because Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman narrating cats has changed your life and the life of everybody you have ever met or will ever meet just because I have suggested the idea. Idea number three. Attach high-powered Gatling guns to, to, to cats. So, you're sitting around, you're watching some mundane program, you can't find your DVD copy of National Geographic Presents Cats as narrated by, Nor by Morgan Freeman, and then, bam, suddenly you're under attack. So, let me back up here. Around 10,000 years ago, the first farmer planted the first crop, and the first mouse that ever noticed the first crop got real excited because these idiot humans were planting food for outside for the mice to eat. You know, for mice, that had to look like a beautiful fucking moment. And then along came the cat. The cat looked at the mouse, who had no food, and then it looked at humans, who had a lot of food and knew how to make more of it, and then it sided with us. The cats weighed its options and it said, no, those people, the ones with the food. And, you know, it was the start of a mutually beneficial friendship. Got that? Okay, good. So, you're under attack. Some screaming madman who could very well be a uh, crystal meth-powered hobo with T-1000 sword arms comes crashing into your paddle, rambling about spoons or some shit, and trying to cut your head off. <clears throat> now, normally, a cat would prove of no use in this situation, but a cat with a high-powered Gatling gun surgically molded to its back would absolutely help you. Um, now, I just established that cats sided with humans because we provide food. Also, cats typically avoid uh, the crystal meth-fueled antics of rambling madmen, so chances are that as your cat runs to hide, it's going to fire off its threat-assessing and self-targeting Gatling gun, thereby, thereby saving your life and ensuring itself more food and scratches under the chin. Idea number four to improve upon cats. Snorkels. Yep, no explanation needed. Idea number five, teleportation. Okay, so imagine that your glow-in-the-dark, Gatling gun-equipped, Morgan Freeman-endorsed, snorkel-wearing cat is all chill with you on the sofa, right? Awesome stuff. Suddenly, you realize that you need to take a shit. So you get up, and you go to evacuate your bowels, closing the bathroom door behind you. Suddenly, and without any premeditated reasoning, that fucking hobo's back. You're even more defenseless now because you're taking a shit. And that's when space and time warp right before your fucking eyes and your kick-ass John Rambo Terminator Jason Statham of a fucking cat materializes out of thin air and finishes the job on Hobo, who for some inexplicable reason has limitless access to your house. Uh, but you're saved again by this kick-ass glowing, snorkeling, gun-wielding, Morgan Freeman-endorsed mega-feline, thereby earning itself even more food and even more scratches under the chin. So that's how you improve upon cats. That's, it's, you know, if you disagree with me or you think there's other ways to improve upon cats, let me know. Go to the Facebook page. Go to the EOS group. 
let me know. <clears throat> All right. So I'm going to bring up a cartoon here. <clears throat> Everybody knows that I've got a small obsession with the movie RoboCop. And by small obsession, I mean I'm completely fucking obsessed with RoboCop. Um, and RoboCop, like all uh, hard R-rated action movies, got a 1980s cartoon, which I've talked about before. But that wasn't the only cartoon based on RoboCop ever made. RoboCop got a second cartoon in 1998 of all fucking years. They decided to reach into mothballs and dust off RoboCop for a cartoon called RoboCop Alpha Commando. Now, before I get into that, I do want to say RoboCop was the finest movie where the title was also the entire concept, the script, and all of the advertising that you ever need. Originally given a complete X rating, RoboCop is the hyper, hyper violent story of a cop who suddenly finds himself upgraded to robo status after being blasted into brain-soaked skull chunks by a gang of murderous drug dealers. He's rebuilt as a cyborg powered by baby food and justice and brutally steamrolls his way through the criminal underworld while all manner of gore explodes around him. Uh, he shoots a rapist in the penis. A man gets mulched into wet quivering pieces of art, uh, wet quivering pieces of flesh by an artillery cannon of the evil walking tank known as the Ed 209. And a businessman snort lines of cocaine off two different prostitutes before getting his kneecaps blasted apart and then blown up with a grenade. In short, it's one of the finest movies ever made. Now, the 1998 RoboCop cartoon, RoboCop Alpha Commando, throws all of that out the window and recasts RoboCop as a dime store inspector gadget type character trying to catch criminals with uh, healthy doses of hijinks and non-sequitur, uh, non, non, non uh, non, no continuity whatsoever. Like every episode is its own episode and stand alone, stands alone. Um, including one episode where he dresses up as a snowman to save Christmas. And I'm not making that up. You can look that up. In another episode, Robocop goes undercover. And he does this by wearing only a Carmen Sandiego-styled fedora hat, which I have to say, he disappeared so completely into his disguise that he became unrecognizable to me. Uh, he li they literally just put a, a fedora on the top of Robocop and I, I couldn't recognize him. I, in no way, shape, or form could I, or anybody else for that matter, tell that that was RoboCop in a hat. He was clearly, his disguise was un, you know, it was perfect. <clears throat> so again, I say that RoboCop, the dick-shooting, neck-stabbing, rocket-launching peace officer with the face of Buckaroo Banzai and the agility of the fucking agents in the Matrix, became a wise-cracking slapstick goofball fighting crime with nets, a grappling hook, a glue gun, and a ping-pong paddle. He also has a disposable towel dispenser installed in his iron gauntlet for some reason because apparently he literally needs to clean up old Detroit. So, again, RoboCop... Um, <clears throat> RoboCop Alpha Commando. Instead of the Reagan-age satire of the film that birthed him, RoboCop finds himself involved in increasingly ridiculous fantasy conflicts all of which he seems to resolve uh, with being, by being even more ridiculous. Each ridiculous situation he gets, it, Robocop seems to find himself in. He resolve, he 
fixes by being even more ridiculous himself. Clobbering bad guys and saving the day on a uh, jubilant wave of children's laughter. Needless to say, the show barely lasted a year, um, which seems to suggest that perhaps Robocop is best suited for shooting rapists in the dick or selling Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, it doesn't really have anything else in the way of redeeming qualities. The opening theme song for this cartoon could be the closest thing to actually being cool. It starts out with a weird Rob Zombie-style medley of beats and industrial noises, then it breaks into full-on ballad mode, and the lyrics are nothing but the word RoboCop over and over again, until about 47 seconds in, a guy goes, Oh yeah! And that's, that's the theme song. That's literally the coolest thing about this cartoon. And it in no way, shape, or form compares to the fucking masterpiece that is the original RoboCop film. Now, <clears throat> speaking of films that uh, are masterpieces. I'm going to give you one here that is... Uh, have you ever noticed sometimes you're watching a movie? Let me let me start it this way. Have you ever noticed sometimes you're watching a movie and it's like billed as like a children's film or a comedy, but something is actually quite horrifying about it and you don't realize it till later? I'm going to tell you about one of those movies right now. In the 80s, as we're aware... Anybody who lived through any part of the 80s, specifically the early to mid-80s, will tell you. The 1980s were all about decadence, and literally whatever idea you wrote down on paper, they would turn into a movie. Literally. You could be like, hey, um, I have this idea about a lamp, and uh, it gets a new lamp shade, but they don't get along. They're not, they're not uh, best of friends, so how about a movie? And they're like, oh, absolutely, yeah, here's, here's, here's $4 million dollars. Go film that. Who do you want to voice the lampshade? Oh, uh, well, I was thinking uh, for the lampshade, we could uh, voice, a, we could get a Stelgetti. Okay, well, who's voicing the lamp? Carl Weathers. Oh, well, absolute perfect casting on that. So, you know, let's go ahead and do that. That's that's how the 80s rolled whenever you were making, making a film. So, on top of that, I have to ask you a question. Several, actually. How do you, as a listener or as a movie viewer, define true horror? True horror. Is it through, like, you know, uh, suffering and slaughter, like in the Saw movies? Is it the dead coming back to life, like, uh, you know, Walking Dead and the zombie movies uh, that Pittsburgh is most uh, famous for? Is it watching reality itself betray you while everything you love is ripped apart, uh, like in, um, you know, In the Mouth of Madness, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, or uh, They Live? Is it something like that? What about all of those... Uh, uh, rolled together into one fucking ball. Because if you haven't guessed, I'm talking about the 1987 film Mannequin, starring Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall, Estelle Getty, and James Spader. But wait, Chad, isn't Mannequin a comedy, you ask? And I ask you, is it? It was a hit movie. Keep in mind, it was a hit movie about a man falling in love with a mannequin who becomes a real woman only when he's looking. If you don't remember this movie or have never seen it, uh, this is going to sound like I'm making shit up, but Mannequin actually exists. Watch it. And the movie, Kim Cattrall plays the mannequin. The mannequin is actually a, apparently a 4,500-year-old Egyptian princess. And to get out of an arranged marriage, she makes a very vague wish to some unnamed Egyptian god 
who turns her, for inexplicable reasons, into a department store mannequin. Um, and so, this mannequin has just been, you know, I guess, uh, forced gumping its way through history ever since. She, uh, at one point in the movie, she casually mentions dating Christopher Columbus and uh, how she wasn't able to seduce and fuck Michelangelo, not the turtle, the, the artist, because he was obsessed with some guy named David. You know, there's little throw-in jokes like that. It's ridiculous. Um, it'd be fair to call this movie the least, the least interesting take on a, on a time travel story before it even occurs to you how it doesn't fucking explain everything. Uh, what the shit does any of what I just told you have to do with why she turns into a store mannequin when anybody else besides Andrew McCarthy looks at her? Much more importantly, there are a lot, a lot of logistics that need to be explained here. So, in the movie, basically, she he looks at her and she turns into a human being, and then they go off and all night long at the department store he works, and they just have wild sex parties, uh, apparently. So... The logistics I need to know about. Would the mannequin's holes seal back up and, like, pop your dick off if somebody looked directly at her while you're fucking it? Um, or if you took her arms and legs off while she was a mannequin and then Andrew McCarthy looks at her, would she return to being, like, a living human person but with, like, four open wounds in the place of her limbs that were splurting blood all over the place? Or would it just be, like, stumps? Would it be, like, like healed over, like, stump people? <clears throat> I, I need to know these questions because they're the first things that came to my mind, my mentally irregular mind. And I also want to point out that Andrew McCarthy doesn't ask any of these questions before he just jumps right into intercourse with this woman. And it quotes, air finger quotes, this woman. Um, so anyway, let's ignore that the department store fashion mannequins uh, weren't even invented until she would have been 4,300 years old or why she's suddenly able to come back to life in this particular era when Andrew McCarthy, of all fucking people, looks at her. There's never really a payoff in the movie either to any of this backstory. It actually makes a magical mannequin less believable to suggest that she's the result of Egyptian gods completely fucking around with her as opposed to any other backstory they could have given her. It, you could have been made out of a, a mannequin made out of magic wood. Magic wood from a tree. That's more. That's more creative. So... Now that I have firmly and concretely established that her origin story is inconsistently stupid and born from the uncreative mind of whoever the fuck wrote this, it's my pleasure to summarize the main plot of Mannequin for you in exactly 17 words. An ancient cursed woman has noisy sex parties with Andrew McCarthy every night in a department store. That's the whole plot. That's the whole fucking plot. That's it. Again, this doesn't make it a horror movie. So, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Chad, you've just been rambling about the plot of Mannequin. In no way, shape, or form is this a horror movie. Uh, get to the point. So, now I will. I will explain to you why I believe that this was all the nightmare fever dream of a deeply disturbed and likely psychotic Andrew McCarthy. Number one. The movie opens with a montage of Andrew McCarthy getting fired from many jobs. You, you know, it's the 80s, you're going to have a montage. This movie opens with one, and this montage is all about how he can't hold a job. He loses most jobs for, they say, being too, quote, artistic. And they never really elaborate on that. You know, Ted Bundy thought he was artistic. Jeffrey Dahmer thought he was artistic. But, uh, you know, 
one of the jobs goes very differently. He doesn't lose that one for being too artistic. Uh, he's making balloon animals at a birthday party, and the birthday boy demands to have the biggest balloon, which in pure 1980s logic, as soon as he gets, starts to carry him off the ground and straight into the sky. Um, Andrew McCarthy catches the kid by the ankle, you know, and the kid's father immediately screams, Hey! Take your hands off my kid! So, again, pure 80s logic. McCarthy takes that demand exactly literally and releases the child, uh, who continues to float up into the sky, and now McCarthy has sentenced him to death, basically. Uh, he doesn't even try to explain that he was trying to keep the kid from floating away, or, for that matter, seem all at all bothered by it. And let's make no mistake, 80s film or not, that kid is dead. I can't emphasize enough how dead that kid is. He was at least 50 feet in the air and still shooting straight up before they cut to the next scene. Even if they, even if a character, some tertiary character, ran to the nearest payphone and dialed 911, which nobody did, by the way, nobody would be able to reach him before his tiny child arms gave out and he fell straight to his death. A death, mind you, that Andrew McCarthy caused and then just walked away from. So, in about 10 seconds, this movie establishes that Andrew McCarthy can't hold a job, may be psychotic, and then it kills a child to the disbelief of the child's father. We haven't even met the star of the movie yet. We haven't even met the, the mannequin, and already two characters have had their lives completely fucked up in tragic, tragic story arcs. The comedy, for comedy, a family has been ripped apart for zero laughs, and we've established that this man, for uh, you know what little charm he possesses, cannot hold a job. That's point one. Point two. At one point in the film, Andrew McCarthy and the mannequin have created a couple of different window displays, which is his job at working overnight at the um, uh, department store whenever, you know, and in between, uh, I guess, while they're recuperating from their fuck fests, they make window displays. Um, and for some reason in 1987, these window displays are hailed as important installations of the, uh, art, cra of the art world by crowds of uh, gaping customers every morning that walk past and see it. <clears throat> and that's a real story element put into the movie by uh, the screenwriters there, by the way. Like, honestly, that the idea of a front store window display would disrupt the entire art world and steal 98% of business from rival department stores, which is a real number that they give you in the film, is, is more absurd to me than the fact that a mannequin comes to life every night to fuck Andrew McCarthy. Anyway... Now that Andrew McCarthy controls all of commerce with his transcendent sporting goods arrangements, his ex-girlfriend, Roxy, who up until this point in the film was not established, wants to take him to lunch to convince him to come work for her boss, uh, who, by the way, gropes her and attempts to uh, harass her and rape her um, almost consistently. <clears throat> so she invites him to a fancy... She invites Andrew McCarthy to a fancy restaurant where he proceeds to turn... A man, a man's life into ashes in a matter of seconds. The maitre d' of the restaurant that Roxy invites Andrew McCarthy to is named Hans. And Hans recognizes Andrew McCarthy the moment he enters the, the fucking building. The moment he enters the restaurant. Because Andrew McCarthy was fired from the same restaurant at the beginning of the movie in the montage for starting a fire 
in a flambe accident, uh, which must have been serious because when you see Hans, he's absolutely shaking with pure terror. Pure, unadulterated terror. <clears throat> I can only assume that Andrew McCarthy uh, caught wind of Hans's fear here. He could smell the fear coming off of Hans, and so he becomes smug and remorseless. And in fact, taunts Hans for having a terrible hairpiece, for wearing a terrible toupee. What happens next is further proof of Andrew McCarthy's psychotic nature. He collides with a waiter, most likely on purpose. It, it, you know, it's done in that 80s slapstick comedy style. Oh, he's klutzy and charming. But uh, I have a feeling he saw the guy coming. He's like, whoops. And it starts another fire right directly in front of Hans, who Hans fucking knew this shit was going to happen. He knew it was going to go down. He took one look at Andrew McCarthy, started shaking, turned as white as a ghost, and within seconds, Andrew McCarthy has started another fire directly in front of him. Hans knew that fucking shit was going to happen. So this is where Andrew McCarthy uh, seemingly bursts into action by lightly waving his hand at the fire to no effect before getting a cruel and stupid idea that only a madman would conceive of and only a monster would act on. He grabs the toupee off Hans' head, the one he was previously mocking, and uses it to fight the fire. Like, physically fight the fire by like slapping the fire with Hans' toupee, which is completely ineffective. It does nothing to put out the blaze, because why would it? And it actually catches Hans' toupee on fire as well. So, now... There is a uh, fire on a burning plate of what-the-fuck-ever and a burning small wig. So what does Andrew McCarthy do now? He leaves. He just fucking leaves. This is a sociopath's idea of comedy. Some mannequin fucker storms into a man's life and went, Fuck your job. Fuck your hair. Fuck your fire. Fuck this place. I'm out. And left. And we're all supposed to giggle and laugh at that. Point number three, Hollywood. Now, there's a character in this movie called Hollywood. Hollywood is a flamboyant character that I can only assume was created when the screenwriter of the screenwriters of the film took both of the gay stereotypes that they knew of and literally nothing else, and they mashed it together. So Hollywood delivers every line in the film like he's Helen Keller, with his mother trying to, uh, you know, remember in the old Helen Keller story, she's deaf and uh, blind, so she, you know they got to teach her talk, and she's like, ay, ay! like that's that's his that's his line delivery for every line in the film. It's like gay male black Helen Keller's trying to come out to his mom, and um, you know, keep in mind, I'm making it sound like he's not a delight, which is absolutely not the case. Hollywood is a complete delight in this film, and he easily steals every scene he's in. And in fact, there are entire 10-minute sections of this movie in which he is just squealing incoherently while Andrew McCarthy stands there and enjoys it like the madman he is. But don't think for a second that Hollywood's life doesn't start to fall apart too the moment he meets Andrew McCarthy. Um, this terrible stock boy, Andrew McCarthy who's notorious for having sex with store merchandise, steals Hollywood's job because, and causes him to doubt his overall abilities at creating window displays. But instead of resentment, 
Hollywood develops like a sad form of like hero worship and starts doing absolutely anything Andrew McCarthy needs. This unfortunately includes assaulting a dozen security guards with a fire hose at one point. And like all Hollywood scenes, the fight goes on way, way longer than it fucking should have. It's, it goes on way longer than necessary because no editor in their right mind could bring themselves to cut a single moment of Hollywood out of the film. Uh, for an insane amount of minutes, Hollywood opens up a fire hose and sprays a group of uh, security guard men while shrieking words and phrases that are unrelated to the rest of the movie or fire hoses or life as we know it. So let's put, your, put yourself in Hollywood shoes here. Close your eyes, everybody. Imagine how difficult the 1980s would have been if you were an openly gay black man dressed like a villain from the Gem and the Holograms cartoon. So now imagine that you interfered with the arrest of a violent trespasser uh, by assaulting security guards with a large fire hose. Now, assuming that he's not shot immediately by police, Hollywood is going to be spending the next three years in jail awaiting trial, where his plea will be, I just love seeing all those wet men, Your Honor, woo! to 19 counts. That'll be his plea to 19 counts of aggravated assault, four counts of criminal mischief, and possession with the intent to distribute for a pound of cocaine um, that the arresting officers planted on him, and the other pound of cocaine that he absolutely already has in his system. Uh, to be fair, this movie does show Hollywood alive and free after this incident, performing a marriage ceremony at the end, during the credits for uh, Andrew McCarthy and the now fully human mannequin. However, this is almost certainly, uh, in my mind, a dream sequence because two out of the three people in that scene would be imprisoned for just so, so many crimes. Reason number four this is a horror film. Estelle Getty. So, at first glance, it seems that Estelle Getty gets out of this film in relatively good shape. You know, after all, her she's the she owns the department store. Her store's business increased astronomically by hiring Andrew McCarthy. I mean, she probably took a little heat from the board of directors for promoting a stock boy to vice president after three days. Um, you know, especially after he was caught sleeping nude on the main floor, uh, beating up security guards and uh, leaving them for dead in the store, assaulting dozens of security guards in another store. Bursting in on a changing female customer, uh, having an open sexual relationship with a mannequin during business hours, and so on and so forth. But let's forget all that. Let's 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 just talk about this tape of hers that she shows up with at the end. So, the store surveillance system, which is only revealed at the end of the movie, uh, recorded everything that went on at night. So. It captured all the crimes that the villains committed, sure, but Andrew McCarthy was having sloppy sex parties uh, with an inexplicable thing all night, every night, assuming, assuming, mind you, that her human form that she takes on when Andrew McCarthy looks at her generated any arousal fluid at all. The two of them ruined hundreds of thousands of dollars in furs, clothes, and outdoor gear all throughout the store. So when Andrew finds out there's a tape of all of this, he's rightly concerned. And Estelle Getty, in her cute Estelle Getty way, reassures him that his secret is safe with her because she knows. She knows 
everything. Those are her words. She says she knows everything and winks at him. So think about this. Let's say for a moment Andrew McCarthy isn't a mannequin fucking psychopath suffering uh, full-on hallucinations and everything we see in the film is actually happening and not just part of his fever dream. Let's, let's imagine that for a second. If that's so, then Estelle Getty has footage of this mannequin coming to life, getting nailed, and then turning back into a mannequin. It's definitive proof of the supernatural, and she doesn't ask a single fucking question. I've got questions right off the top of my head about, the, does the mannequin eat? Does she use a bathroom? Uh, does she need to take showers? Or does turning back and forth into a mannequin somehow clean her? Uh, if you crack her open in her wooden form, would you find half-digested food and uh, Andrew McCarthy's semen from the night before? So on and so forth. Those are just off the top of my fucking head. And as for the major, major event that she's caught on the security camera, James Spader kidnaps the mannequin and attempts to feed it into a wood chipper located in the basement of his department store. Um, I... They don't really establish how this is going to uh, be a victory for him. It's just it makes him appear as in, equally as insane as um, Andrew McCarthy. But it's James Spader, so he comes off in fantastic fashion as usual. <clears throat> so, again, this is a kidnapping of a centuries-old Jane Doe by a rival department store owner and a deranged security guard. This is an attempted murder of the oldest living being on Earth. And it was foiled by a sex-crazed maniac who bangs wooden girls and the world's most media-friendly flamboyant man with a fire hose. Think it over. Take a second. If that happened, there would be the, that would be the only goddamn thing on the news for the next fucking ten years and Estelle Getty has a tape of it. She's got physical evidence. She would now be living in a world in which science and Western religion were proven wrong about everything, and she's got the proof on a fucking celebrity sex tape, which is also evidence the police will certainly demand, by the way, and assuming that the um, that she herself is not dissected by government scientists, Estelle Getty's life is over. She's going to be hounded by TV reporters, producers, Egypt Egyptologists, and fucking UFO hunters for the rest of her life. Every mannequin in her store is going to get stolen and then penetrated by lonely customers. Her life is ruined all because she crossed paths with Andrew McCarthy. That is pure fucking horror. And I, I can't be argued with on that. Mannequin's a horror movie. But before I move on to the next topic, I do want to say that the scariest thing about Mannequin isn't the 1987 movie. It's that in 2019, we are almost certain to get a gender-swapped remake of this film at any given time. Alright, moving on. So, 2008 was a very special year. 2008 was the year that uh, Grimace and I started the original Element of Surprise. And because of that, we are now here, you're here listening to me right now. There's something else that happened in 2008. In 2008, in the town of Bellevue, Ohio, in the month of March, a man by the name of Art Price Jr. was caught on tape having sex with a picnic table. 
On four separate occasions between the hours of 10.30 a.m. and noon, he walked out onto his back porch, or I'm sorry, his uh, <clears throat> side porch here, and had sex with his picnic table. So the officer, the police chief that uh, had to comment on this was named uh, Chief Johnson, oddly enough. Ha ha ha. You know, I don't know if anybody else got that, but I thought it was funny. Um, and it's absolutely true. You know, what made, what made this a felony, uh, Chief, Police Chief Johnson said, is that it took place in close proximity to an elementary school, which made it very likely that children could have at any point in time seen Price having sex with his picnic table. A neighbor claims to have seen Price walk out onto his deck, stand the round metal table up on its side, and use the hole where you put the umbrella to, to, to have sex with the table. That same neighbor, using all the logic and rationale of a fully functioning sociopath themselves, didn't call the police. They videotaped Price four times in the act before calling the police. Police said that Price admitted to his crimes, which was four charges of public indecently, and then, uh, you know, said that usually these things sort, uh, sort themselves out because they're misdemeanors. But in this case, it's felony because he shouldn't be allowed just for the fact that he could do it again and uh, was nude close to a school. That should be a zero-tolerance thing, said um, the officers. Um, as well as a neighbor whose name was Bryce Jacobs. Bryce Jacobs was possibly the same neighbor who decided to bust out her camera and film Price in the first place. This case had police in the small town shaking their heads. Uh, once you've seen it all, something else comes around. Uh, police Chief Johnson was quoted saying, as if he himself had never entertained the idea of mounting his family picnic table and having his way with it. Um, but why, why do you ask, am I bringing up an 11-year-old police story about an Ohio man who dicks down picnic tables anytime he gets a hard-on? Well, I'll tell you. Yes. Yes, this man had sex with a picnic table on his porch four times and two hours. And yes, this man did so within a stone's throw of an elementary school. But there's more to it than that. Whether we want to admit it or not, we've all looked at the umbrella hole in our picnic tables and at one point or another thought to ourselves, I bet I could have sex with that. Some of us have might have even propped the thing up on his side, you know, just to see the heights, just to see if the logistics would work. And maybe, sure, there was some, one, one particular dark moonless night when some of us uh, decided to even take it a step further, just to a minute, just for a minute to see what it was like. But for most of us, that's as far as we're willing to go. We're members of a society that doesn't permit that sort of behavior. And aside from a momentary alcohol-soaked, potentially career-ending lapses in judgment, we play by the rules. We understand that having sex with picnic tables in public is illegal. Maybe the fat cats in Washington, George Soros, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and all other manners of reptilians are in their private backyards greedily humping away at their exotic and expensive diamond-coated picnic tables and laughing maniacally like the evil bastards they are. 
They hold their crystal chalices full of Red Bull vodka and baby blood in one hand and fountain pens in the other. The very same fountain pens that they used to sign into legislation the acts that made it illegal to have sex with picnic tables in the first place. Then they retire to their living rooms, exhausted and drunk after a long day of humping picnic tables, snorting lines of cocaine off each other's rigid splintered penises, and drinking the blood of orphans. And they watch this story on the news, shaking their heads and chuckling their tongues as if to say, Poor fool, only now, at the end, do you understand? This isn't the story of some freak. This is the story of his bizarre sexual habits. This is the story of a class struggle in a system that rewards the rich while penalizing the poor. This is the story of an American everyman, a man who refused to let the social mores established by powerful, money-worshipping culture dictate his behavior. This is the story of a weirdo. This isn't the story of a weirdo, rather. This is the story of a hero. A hero who said, fuck you, George Soros. I can fuck a picnic table when I want, how I want, and where I want. A hero who dared to fuck a picnic table on his front porch while fully nude in the middle of the day, right next to an elementary school, four times. <clears throat> Moving on. Snuffleupagus once ate a child. I'm not making that up. We've all... We were all kids at one point. We were all sat down to watch the uh, the antics of Grover, Big Bird, Bert, Ernie, and yes, Mr. Snuffleupagus. Unfortunately, myself and many of us were born a little too late to be aware of the fact that Snuffy once ate a human child. I'm going to tell you the story, but I'm going to give you a full backstory here. So, Mr. Snuffleupagus, he is a giant woolly mammoth living in an urban American environment. Nothing weird about that. What is weird, though, is that for an animal so big, he feels so incredibly insecure about himself. He's got an inferiority complex, and I'm sure, as you all know, an inferiority complex is a feeling of inadequacy stemming from either a real or an imagined source. The thing about Snuffy is that his complex has a very real origin that you can watch. If you go back far enough on episodes of Sesame Street, you can watch. Because at the beginning of his career, there was a running joke about Snuffy in which he was never seen by the adults. He'd always, you know, they'd always just miss seeing him at the last second. And this caused a lot of the viewers and adult characters to speculate that he was Big Bird's imaginary friend. And they kept this up on Sesame Street for 14 fucking years. But then, in 1985, they finally introduced him to the rest of the cast, and everybody saw that, oh, Snuffleupagus is real. But imagine that for a second. For a decade and a half, even when you've made active attempts to meet people, no one on Earth knows you exist. Imagine what that would do to you mentally. Because it broke Snuffy. And while the feelings of inadequacy are often subconscious, inferiority complex often compels its victims to overcompensate so that the, those suffering from this condition may withdraw completely from a social circle or, as the case with Mr. Snuffleupagus, go to the other extreme of continuously seeking out attention from their peers. Watch any episode of Sesame Street with Snuffy in it. That's what he does. Uh, many years ago, the cast and crew of Sesame Street were celebrating a season wrap-up party with their families. 
Um, and during the opening comedy routine, Snuffy was assigned the role of being the MC. He was like, you know, your, your, your host, basically, for that year's wrap-up party. And um, during the opening comedy routine, uh, Snuffy was just too, too anxious and not, uh, pardon this, up to snuff. And he kept screwing up his lines and jokes. That, uh, there was that and that nobody seemed to know that he harbored a, uh, a dark carnivorous side. So, several botched jokes later, Snuffy grew so flustered that he straight up ate one of the kids in the audience. Snuffy's victim was Sesame Street cameraman's nephew, who, uh, you know, uh, they say, ba- the, the producer and everything say, agreed to be sacrificed for the sake of comedy. But even so, that isn't the point. The point is that an entire generation of children who have adored Snuffy for his gentleness, his kindness, and, you know, his, his just wanting to be loved, witnessed him get so flustered by his inferiority complex that he ate a kid. They were probably terrified. Why would their beloved friend, Snuffy, eat someone? Is he coming to eat them now? Why does he want to eat them? They were, it's a terrifying, terrifying concept. So, after terrifying an entire generation for the so-called joke, they, they, a, year late, a year passes. At the next season's wrap-up party, Snuffy comes out to start the show again. And he goes, oh, they, oh, that he's not feeling so well. He's got a tummy ache. And suddenly, he starts to heave, and he throws up the same boy that he ate a year previous, who's now wearing a tattered shirt and is covered in goo. And you can look this up. It exi- This is real shit. So now, after scarring a whole generation of children, he adds to their torment. You know, a year passes by. Maybe they'd started to forgetting about it. Maybe it started to sink uh, back into their uh, subconscious. They're not so terrified of Snuffy anymore. And he adds to their torment by puking the same kid up, which bears also questions. How did that kid survive for an entire year? What did he live off of? Would Snuffy eat? Um, would Snuffy eating a child not be the most terrifying part of the experience? Would they be forced to survive off the partially digested food that Snuffy eats year-round until he gets sick and vomits them up as well? So that was actually a fucking thing. And keeping in mind that these are back at uh, this was back during some of Snuffleupagus's earliest appearances in which he didn't look as lovable and hug- huggable as he does now. His appearance kind of fell, during that time, fell somewhere between sentient shag carpet and demonically possessed pile of ground beef. Um, but it's a real thing. Look into it. Snuffy ate a child. Okay. So, the last thing I'm going to talk to you about in this episode is Bar Fight Self-Defense by Scott Rogers. Anybody who's been on the EOS group page saw that I posted the first part, only the first part of the video, the the three-part series that I watched, where Scott Rogers uh, shows you how to defend yourself in a bar fight. So let's begin here. Scott Rogers is a martial artist with just enough of a New York accent to never be taken seriously. And his videos explain how to defend against every possible bar weapon, including pool cues, broken bottles of beer, karate chops, darts, knives, and guns. I've put the first video I said on the EOS Group Facebook page, and I urge you to watch it if you haven't. From there, find the others and watch them on your own, because your life could depend on it. But, let's go through the Scott Rogers process, shall we? Step 1. Bar fight training in the gym. 
So, Scott uses a guy named Mike, who I will now refer to as Assistant Mike for the duration, to uh, demonstrate most of his moves. Now, when a martial arts teacher pretends to punch you, it's, it's just polite to, you know, gently go, Ugh, as if he hurt you. Assistant Mike, as you'll see in the video, is very good at this. He even makes different sound effects depending on where Scott pretends to hit or kick him. And apparently, filming a karate video is exactly like being seven years old and playing karate in the backyard. Um, now, all bullshitting aside, Assistant Mike is lucky to be alive. Because, from what I learned from the videos, if you were struck by a real Scott Rogers punch you would go flying through uh, the cement wall behind you, leaving a person-shaped hole in your wake. Um, and also, a quick fighting fact, getting back to the imaginary punch sound, and why it's good that uh, Assistant Mike goes, and, and reacts to the punches. I've seen enough pro wrestling to know that if you throw a fake punch, if you throw an imaginary punch at somebody, and the person you hit doesn't react, it is a sign of their overwhelming strength and manliness. For example, if you ever throw a fake punch at Hulk Hogan and it appears to have no effect on him, it means that he's about to fucking destroy you. Anyway, anyway, I digress. Uh, during the gym parts of the, of the video, I started to wonder if I was supposed to be drunk when I'm at the dojo training for bar fights with Scott Rogers, but that seemed like the kind of thing someone would wonder right before Scott Rogers called them fag and rammed a beer stein into their heart. So I dismissed it and just continued to watch and educate myself. Step two, drunken improv karate theater. So after pantomiming how to murder assistant Mike for 15 minutes, the next step is going into a bar or a room set up as a bar and uh, putting on little plays to show how the moves work. So after seeing several of the scenarios that he comes up with, I get the impression that uh, pretty much everybody who has ever met Scott Rogers has attacked him. His bar fight scenarios seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, it's never anything like, hey asshole, you spilled my drink, and then a fight ensues. Instead, they all start with, hi, I'm Scott Rogers. In this scenario, you walk into a bar and you look like me. Every person who sees your face feels a desperate need uh, deep inside them to, to approach it and kill it with anything that they seem to be holding randomly at that time. Here's how to fend them off with a torch on the end of a grappling hook. Assistant Mike will play the part of the intended attacker slash my intended victim, and everything that isn't me is your enemy. That That's pretty much step two of uh, the Scott Rogers process. Step three, reviewing. So in that part of the video, Scott goes through all the moves from his bar fight theater in detail. He might explain how when Assistant Mike came at him with a knife, he countered by jamming a pool cue into his neck and then grabbing it in the center so that way he could use both ends of the pool cue to batter him. Um, I should probably point out here that Scott Rogers' 2,298-0 record in no-contact imaginary bar fights against Assistant Mike has made him more of a jungle cat than a man. Uh, for us regular human people, it will take a bit of time for our eyeballs to tell our brains that the incoming knife is coming at you, cross-reference its knife files with its karate files, and then tell our hands to start twirling a pool cue. Uh, for Scott Rogers, however, he has time to change out, uh, change out of his good shoes, pick up a pen, uh, 
shove the pen in your dick hole and then repair drywall at uh, his mother's house before the knife even reaches him. Uh, for the rest of us, the idea of stopping a knife swing by hitting a moving Adam's apple, a moving person's Adam's apple with the end of a pool cue after even one one alcoholic beverage is so ludicrous that Scott might as well ask us to conjure a fireball out of thin air and just throw it at our attacker like it's fucking Dragon Ball Z. And do you know what happens when a normal person grabs the middle of a pool cue and smacks somebody with the tip of it? Just lightly smacks them with the tip of the pool cue? Do you know what happens? I'm going to tell you. Fucking nothing. It does so little damage, they might actually get healthier. And that's the exact method on how to train... That's the exact method on how to train cats not to shit in houseplants, is poking them with a pool cue. That's how you get an elderly person's attention when their hearing aid is turned off. You poke people with the end of a stick, and it's basically just going to further piss them off. Especially if that person is an agitated, drunken assailant. Now, I'm glad that Scott Rogers can kill a guy like that, but I was raised on Earth and in the gravity of Earth. And therefore, I can never replicate any of the awesomeness needed to generate a force field by spinning a pool cue at cosmic velocities or sidestepping a punch from behind. Um, none of us could possibly have known what's coming and countering it with, a per with, a two with 248 perfectly timed kicks into the dickhole. We can't summon a hawk to deal a death blow to the drunken attacker's face. It just doesn't happen. And the addition of beer or alcohol definitely lessens the effects of all of what I just described, as well as convinces us that we can summon that hawk. I've been in enough bars to know that bar fights are started when beer is applied to douchebags with sexual frustration. According to Scott Rogers, those same fights are ended with karate, Dragon Ball Z abilities, pull cues, and metal hawks that float down out of space. Thank you. This has been the Element of Surprise. Before I let you go, I urge you, I urge you to check out the following podcast. There is a fireside chat hosted by Ryan McCormick, good old Grimace, the original project, pro, uh, progenitor, creator, the reason the element of surprise exists today. Check out a fireside chat hosted by Ryan McCormick. That's available on Libsyn as well as through his Facebook page, the, uh, the, a fireside chat with, with a Ryan McCormick Facebook page. Uh, check out 4AM Knows All of My Secrets, hosted by Ryan McCormick and Tiffany Moore, also on uh, Libsyn. Check out the McSauce comic book podcast, hosted by <clears throat> Paul, Ian, and Matt. That's available on YouTube and on uh, Podomatic. And then check out uh, Case in Point podcast, with, hosted by Justin Case and Jody Reardon on uh, Audioboom. Also on... Um, YouTube as well. That's all I've got. I thank you. I thank you all greatly. Greatly. Uh, please continue listening to these episodes. Promote the element of surprise. Leave us a review. Check out all the other podcasts I told you to check out. And cue the fucking bear music.
Falco records. Let me have a dance. 